This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This is a recording of Aristotle's Poetics, translated by Ingram Bywater with a preface by Gilbert Murray and read to you by Bob Foster. Chapter 9 from what we have said, it will be seen that the poet's function is to describe not the thing that has happened, but a kind of thing that might happen, that is, what is possible as being probable or necessary. The distinction between historian and poet is not in the one writing prose and the other verse. You might put the work of Herodotus into verse, and it would still be a species of history. It consists really in this, that the one describes the thing that has been, and the other a kind of thing that might be. Hence poetry is something more philosophic and of graver import than history, since its statements are of the nature rather of universals, whereas those of history are singulars. By a universal statement, I mean one as to what such or such a kind of man will probably or necessarily say or do, which is the aim of poetry, though it affixes proper names to the characters. By a singular statement, one as to what, say, Alcibiades did or had done to him. In comedy, this has become clear by this time. It is only when their plot is already made up of probable incidents that they gave it a basis of proper names, choosing for the purpose any names that may occur to them, instead of writing like the old iambic poets about particular persons. In tragedy, however, they still adhere to the historic names, and for this reason. What convinces is the possible. Now, whereas we are not yet sure as to the possibility of that which has not happened, that which has happened is manifestly possible, else it would not have come to pass. Nevertheless, even in tragedy there are some plays with but one or two known names in them, the rest being inventions, and there are some without a single known name, for example, Agathons and Thenes, in which both incidents and names are of the poet's invention, and it is no less delightful on that account. So that one must not aim at a rigid adherence to the traditional stories on which tragedies are based. It would be absurd, in fact, to do so, as even the known stories are only known to a few, though they are a delight none the less to all. It is evident from the above that the poet must be more the poet of his stories or plots than of his verses. Inasmuch as he is a poet, by virtue of the imitative element in his work, and it is actions that he imitates, and if he should come to take <clears throat> a subject from actual history, he is none the less a poet for that, since some historic occurrences may very well be in the probable and possible order of things and it is in that aspect of them that he is their poet. Of simple plots and actions, the episodic are the worst. I call a plot episodic when there is neither probability nor necessity in the sequence of episodes. Actions of this sort bad poets, bad poets 
construct through their own fault, and good ones on account of the players. His work being for public performance, a good poet often stretches out a plot beyond its capabilities, and is thus obliged to twist the sequence of incident. Tragedy, however, is an imitation not only of a complete action, but also of incidents arousing pity and fear. Such incidents have the very greatest effect on the mind when they occur unexpectedly, and at the same time in consequence of one another. There is more of the marvelous in them than if they happened of themselves or by mere chance. Even matters of chance seem most marvelous if there is an appearance of design as it were in them, as, for instance, the statue of Mytus at Argos killed the author of Mytus's death by falling down on him when a looker-on at a public spectacle. For incidents like that we think to be not without a meaning. A plot, therefore, of this sort is necessarily finer than others. Chapter 10. Plots are either simple or complex, since the actions they represent are naturally of this twofold description. The action proceeding in the way defined, as one continuous whole, I call simple. When the change in the hero's fortunes take place without peripety or discovery, and complex when it involves one or the other, or both. These, should each of them, arise out of the structure of the plot itself, so as to be the consequence necessary or probable of the antecedents. There is a great difference between a thing happening propter hoc and post hoc. Chapter 11 a peripety, spelled P-E-R-I-P-E-T-Y, is the change from one state of things within the play to its opposite of the kind described, and that too in the way we are saying in the probable or necessary sequence of events, as it is, for instance, in Oedipus. Here the opposite state of things is produced by the messenger, who, coming to gladden Oedipus and to remove his fears as to his mother, reveals the secret of his birth. And in Lincius, just as he is being led off for execution, with Danaus at his side to put him to death, the incidents preceding this bring it about that he is saved and Danaus put to death. A discovery is, as the very word implies, a change from ignorance to knowledge, and thus to either love or hate in the personages marked for good or evil fortune. The finest form of discovery is one attended by peripeties, like that which goes with the discovery in Oedipus. There are no doubt other forms of it. What we have said may happen in a way in reference to inanimate things, even things of a very casual kind. And it is also possible to discover whether some one has done or not done something. But the form most directly connected with the plot and the action of the piece is the first mentioned. This with a peripety will arouse either pity or fear, 
actions of that nature being what tragedy is assumed to represent, and it will also serve to bring about the happy or unhappy ending. The discovery, then, being of persons, it may be that of one party only to the other, the latter being already known, or both the parties may have to discover themselves. Iphigenia, for instance, was discovered to Orestes by sending the letter, and another discovery was required to reveal him to Iphigenia. Two parts of the plot, then, peripety and discovery, are on matters of this sort. A third part is suffering, which we may define as an action of a destructive or painful nature, such as murders on the stage, tortures, woundings, and the like. The other two have been already explained. Chapter 12 The parts of tragedy to be treated as formative elements in the whole were mentioned in a previous chapter. From the point of view, however, of its quantity, that is, the separate sections into which it is divided, a tragedy has the following parts. Prologue, Episode, Exode, E-X-O-D-E, and a choral portion distinguished into Parode, P-A-R-O-D-E, and Stasimon, S-T-A-S-I-M-O-N. These two are common to all tragedies, whereas songs from the stage and komai are only found in some. The prologue is all that precedes the parode of the chorus, an episode, all that comes in between two whole choral songs. The exode, all that follows after the last choral song. In the choral portion, the parode is the whole first statement of the chorus. A stasimon, a song of the chorus without anapests or trochees. A comas, a lamentation sung by chorus and actor in concert. The parts of tragedy to be used as formative elements in the whole we have already mentioned. The above are its parts from the point of view of its quantity, or the separate sections into which it is divided. Chapter 13. The next points after what we have said above will be these. 1. What is the poet to aim at, and what is he to avoid, in constructing his plots? And 2. What are the conditions on which the tragic effect depends? We assume that, for the finest form of tragedy, the plot must be not simple but complex, and further, that it must imitate actions arousing pity and fear, since that is the distinctive function of this kind of imitation. It follows, therefore, <clears throat> that there are three forms of plot to be avoided. 1. A good man must not be seen passing from happiness to misery. Or 2. A bad man from misery to happiness. The first situation is not fear-inspiring or piteous, but simply odious to us. The second is the most untragic that can be, that has no one of the requisites of tragedy. It does not appeal either to the human feeling in us, or to our pity, or to our fears. Nor, on the other hand, should, three, an extremely bad man be seen falling from happiness into misery. 
Such a story may arouse the human feeling in us, but it will not move us to either pity or fear. Pity is occasioned by undeserved misfortune, and fear by that of one like ourselves, so that there will be nothing either piteous or fear-inspiring in the situation. There remains, then, the intermediate kind of personage, a man not preeminently virtuous and just, whose misfortune, however, is brought upon is brought upon him not by vice and depravity, but by some error of judgment, of the number of those in the enjoyment of great reputation and prosperity, for example, Oedipus, Thyestes, and the men of note of similar families. The perfect plot, accordingly, must have a single, and not, as some tell us, a double issue. The change in the hero's fortunes must be not from misery to happiness, but on the contrary from happiness to misery, and the cause of it must lie not in any depravity, but in some great error on his part. The man himself being either such as we have described, or better, or not worse than that. Sorry, or better, not worse than that. Fact also confirms our theory. Though the poets began by accepting any tragic story that came to hand, in these days the finest tragedies are always on the story of some few houses, on that of Elemion, Oedipus, Orestes, Miliager, Thyestes, Telephus, or any others that may have been involved, as either agents or sufferers, in some deed of horror. The theoretically best tragedy, then, has a plot of this description. The critics, therefore, are wrong who blame Euripides for taking this line in his tragedies and giving many of them an unhappy ending. It is, as we have said, the right line to take. The best proof is this. On the stage and in the public performances, such plays properly worked out are seen to be the most truly tragic, and Euripides, even in his execution, sorry, even if his execution be faulty in every other point, is seen to be nevertheless the most tragic, certainly, of the dramatists. After this comes the construction of plot, which some rank first, one with a double story like the Odyssey, and an opposite issue for the good and the bad personages. It is ranked as first only through the weakness of the audiences. The poets merely follow their public, writing as its wishes dictate. But the pleasure here is not that of tragedy. It belongs rather to comedy, where the bitterest enemies in the piece, for example Orestes and Aegisthus, walk off good friends at the end with no slaying of anyone by anyone.